Nira Yalt, welcome back to the Indie Hackers Podcast. Thanks. Great to be here, Cortland. It's good to have you back. You were last on the podcast, I think, two years ago, around July of 2017. We talked about your book, Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Products, which has since gone on to become a Wall Street Journal bestseller. It hit number one in the products category on Amazon. And it's also one of my favorite books. It's given me a couple of useful mental models that I use on a regular basis. Today, you've written a new book. It's called Indistractable. Why don't you tell us a little bit about it and what it means to be indistractable? Yeah, so the definition of becoming indistractable, by the way, it's a made-up word, and so the the benefit of having a made-up word is that you can define it any way you like. So I define indistractable as a person who strives to do what they say they're going to do. It's about personal integrity. You know, none of us would think it's acceptable to lie to our friends, to our family, to our colleagues. We would never do that. And yet we lie to ourselves all the time. We say we're going to do one thing, we don't. Right? We say we're going to work out, we don't. We say we're going to eat right, we don't. We say we're going to sit down at our desk and do that hard project that we've been putting off, we don't. We say we're going to be fully present with our kids and family and friends, but we're distracted. And so that's really what the book is about, is how do you become indistractable? How do you become the kind of person who lives with personal integrity, who does what they say they're going to do? Obviously, this stuff is important for everybody, but as an indie hacker, especially as a, the founder of like a very early stage tech business, it's doubly important. If you're not able to do the things that you've committed to doing, if you can't do the things that you've told yourself you're going to do, then nobody else is going to step in and do it for you. You don't have a bunch of coworkers. There's no system in place. You don't have a bunch of employees. It's really just you. And so if you consistently don't get things done, then your company is not going to progress. And you know this well, Nir. You've started and sold a couple of tech businesses yourself. How can becoming indistractable help us to become better founders? You know, one of the hardest things about uh, running a company is prioritizing properly and then executing on those priorities. Because when you're in the fog of war that is a startup, there are so many things coming at you all the time. And so it's absolutely critical to know what to work on and then to actually execute on those tasks. That I mean, as a founder, that's pretty much your only job. That's your job in a nutshell, Michelle. Just prioritize and execute. That's it. <laughs> that's all you got to do. But that's, of course, extremely challenging. And many times what we see is it's kind of one or the other. We see a lot of founders, uh, I do a lot of angel investing. So you see folks who are really bad at prioritizing or really bad at executing. And of course, we, we need both. And so where distraction comes to play is if you are constantly distracted, we used to call this the shiny pony. Uh, when I was at my last startup, I've helped start two companies. And we used to call this the shiny pony of like, oh, there's a new idea, right? Like, oh, let, let's all do that. <laughs> you know. And uh, it would be strategically, uh, we'd have shiny ponies distracting us. And we'll, we'd also have, you know, during the day, you know, whether it's office gossip, or the latest thing trending on Twitter, or a flurry of emails that something's important, and now everything else has to come to a halt. So, you know, being able to do what it is you say you're going to do, this is a macro skill. I mean, this is the skill of the century that I believe that the world is becoming a potentially more distracting place. And we're bifurcating into two groups of people, people who let their time and attention, in their lives be controlled and manipulated by others. And people who say, no, I, I choose to take control of my life by taking control of my attention and making sure that I do what it is I say I'm going to do. Well, to your point, Nir, about there being two different types of people, the indistractable kind and the, the kind who aren't, I meet a ton of different founders who progress at wildly different rates. I've met people who discovered indie hackers, and two or three weeks later, they've got an app, and they've built it, and they've got a paying customer or two. 
I've met people who've been telling me for the last three years that they can't wait to get started on their business. They just need to sit down one day and come up with an idea. They just need to uh, spend a little bit more time learning, acquire a little bit more knowledge. How do you think about the differences between people at these two extremes? Well, I think the problem that most folks face, not only in business, but also in life, is not a problem of knowledge, right? It is not a knowledge gap. We all know what to do basically, right? If you want to have a good looking body and lose weight, then you have to, guess what? Exercise and eat right. If you want to have good relationships with your family, your friends, you have to be fully present with them. And if you want to be successful in business, you know what? You have to do the goddamn work, especially the stuff that's not so fun to do. You have to, you have to grind. And so that means that if the problem isn't a knowledge gap, what is the problem? If we know basically what we need to do, why don't we do it? And that's really the, the central question of indistractable. Why don't we do the things we know we should? Uh, and why do we do the things we know we shouldn't? Part of the problem is that we allow distraction to trick us. That uh, Maybe it's helpful to actually give the definition of what I mean by distraction. So distraction, the best way to understand distraction is by understanding the opposite of distraction. The opposite of distraction is not focus. The opposite of distraction is traction. So both words come from the same Latin root, trahare, which means to pull. And both words end in the same five letters, A-C-T-I-O-N, that spells action. So traction and distraction are actions that we take. Not things that happen to us, but actions that we take. So traction is any action that pulls you towards what you want, things that you are doing with intent. The opposite of traction is distraction traction, anything that is pulling you away from what it is you decided to do with your time. And so what, what oftentimes happens is, you know, you sit down at your desk and this is what happened to me all the time before I learned this methodology. I'd say, okay, I'm going to work on that big project right now. I'm going to do that thing. That's hard work. That I need to focus. I need to concentrate and do this project right after I check email, right after I do some research on Google, right after I check that Slack channel and we don't get to doing the hard work. I mean, I can't tell you how many companies fail because nobody is making time to think? Just think. Sit down and think strategically. Almost nobody puts this time in their schedule. And we are much worse off for it because we do nothing but react all day long. We react to meetings. We react to emails. And we have no time to reflect but that reflection time is critical, especially if you are a founder. You need to spend time thinking critically about the future of your business. Where are you going? And to just react all day long, you know, banging out emails and going to meetings, you're not spending the time that you need to think strategically and reflect on the business in order to provide the strategic guidance for the company. So it is a, a crucial skill for founders. Okay, it's funny you mentioned this because I actually take the time to schedule self-reflection onto my calendar. I've got a weekly recurring event for it and that little event is the first thing to get eliminated anytime anything pops up. Like something happens on the Indie Hackers forum that I need to take care of, hop over to my calendar, press delete, perfect. Now I've got an open slot for whatever it is I want to handle. You've got a whole framework in your book that explains why we get distracted and what we can do to avoid distractions and do the things that we originally planned on doing. Give us the basic overview. Right. Okay. So we talked about traction and distraction. So you can think about that. Uh, like if you think about a big plus mark, okay. And you've got the four points of the plus mark and it's almost like a compass, right? North, east, south, and west. So you've got on the horizontal axis on one side, you have traction, let's say in the east, right? The east point 
On the west side, you have distraction. And now I want you to think about the vertical line as two arrows pointing towards the center, okay, of this big plus mark. Those two arrows represent the two things that move us towards traction or distraction. And what moves all of our behavior are just two things, external triggers and internal triggers. External triggers are things in our environment that tell us what to do next, right? These are the pings, dings, rings, and things that prompt us to either traction or distraction. It's not that these things are always sinister. If, if, uh, if a buzz on your phone tells you, hey, it's time to go work out or it's time for that meeting and that's what you plan to do, well, terrific, that's moving you towards traction. But if you are in the middle of a meeting and you get some notification on your phone and now you're not paying attention because you're distracted, uh, well, then that's not a good thing. That's, that's moving you away from traction. And so we have to understand that external triggers are one source of triggers that move us towards traction or distraction. But there's one more, even more common source, which are what, what I call internal triggers. And if you read Hooked, you'll be very familiar with these internal triggers. Internal triggers spark us to do pretty much everything. And an internal trigger is an uncomfortable emotional state. Uh, so when we feel uh, lonely, we check Facebook. When we're uncertain, we Google. When we're bored, we check you know, the news, uh, Reddit, uh, stock prices, sports scores, all of these things uh, cater to this uncomfortable sensation uh, of boredom. And so what we have to realize is that we get distracted because most distraction starts from within. That we are using these tools as emotional pacification devices. They're emotional pacifiers. And so that means if we want to grow up, if we want to get rid of our pacifiers, like babies, we have to learn how to cope with that discomfort, which means that time management is pain management. The reason we procrastinate, the reason we get distracted, by and large, is not because of our devices. Stop blaming technology. It's because of what's going on inside of us. It's the uncomfortable sensations that we do not know how to deal with in a healthy way. And so basically, we can conquer distraction and become indistractable with four basic steps. Step one is that we master the internal triggers. Step two is that we make time for traction. Step three is that we hack back the external triggers. And step four has to be done last is that we prevent distraction with pacts. And it's with these four steps that we can make sure we do what it is we say we're going to do. This is how we become indistractable. Okay, so let's walk through this. Step one is to master your internal triggers. And your internal triggers, as you said, are these uncomfortable sensations that you have internally that you want to alleviate. So you're hungry, you want to satisfy your hunger. You're curious, you want to alleviate your curiosity. If you're uh, bored, you want to do something exciting. And we're constantly sort of bombarded by this voice telling us to alleviate these uncomfortable feelings. I know a lot of people who subscribe to some form of Buddhist philosophy where they're very focused on the fact that desire is the enemy. That no matter what you want, it's kind of a bad thing because the act of wanting something means that you are in pain from not having it right now. And so they're very focused on how do I basically eliminate desire? It's kind of ironic. They desire to get rid of desire. You take a very different approach in your book. You're not saying that we should get rid of our desires altogether, but at the same time you're admitting that, look, there is no such thing as being happily ever after. There is no such thing as never having any of these internal cravings, right? You're never going to be completely satisfied, but that doesn't mean you should eliminate desire. What that means is that you should figure out a way to get around these cravings. And so in your book, you have this pretty cool, 
I don't know how to describe it. It's almost like a psychological judo move that you're advocating where you take a lot of these negative internal triggers. You take these cravings, you take these desires and this dissatisfaction and you actually flip it around and you use it to motivate you to get things done and move yourself towards traction. How do we do that exactly? Yeah, so this is this is a, where I take issue with, I think, where we've swung too far into one direction. So I only mention meditation and mindfulness one time in the book where I say I will not be talking about meditation and mindfulness for the rest of the book <laughs> because it's overdone. We have swung too far into thinking that meditation solves all our problems. And while meditation can be very useful for some problems, it's not what we do for every problem. I know for you know the hackers and founders out there, you want to do something. You want to fix the problem, which is the right thing to do. That w- I do agree with the Buddhist approach that, that suffering is part of the human condition, that I do not agree with the Western self-help industry telling us that if you're not happy, if you're not satisfied, that you're not normal. I think that's ridiculous, that our species evolved to be constantly dissatisfied. The question is, how do we channel that dissatisfaction for good? for healthy behaviors as opposed to hurtful behaviors. And we can, in fact, channel that. And the way we do that is by understanding that we should change the, be- the situation, the circumstances that we can change and learn ways to cope with the circumstances we can't change. And so it's all about mastering your internal triggers, which is about you know, finding the source of those internal triggers, finding the source for the stress, the uncertainty, the loneliness, the fatigue, whatever it might be that you are trying to escape with some kind of distraction pacification device, when you can change the source of that discomfort, do it. You know, Stop meditating and go fix the goddamn problem. But when you can't fix the source of the problem, when it's just part of you know, day-to-day life, there's this just the, the ennui of being a human being is that you, you, you know, we feel these, these uncomfortable sensations. And so there the answer is learning techniques to cope with discomfort. And it's only by coping with that discomfort that we can make sure that we channel it towards traction as opposed to distraction. And so there's all kinds of techniques I give you in the book for how to do that. How do you cope with discomfort in in a healthier manner? So these techniques include reimagining the trigger itself, reimagining the task, and reimagining our temperament. And so it's with these techniques, you know, knowing when we should change the circumstances versus knowing when we should learn methods to cope with those circumstances, that's how we master our internal triggers. But that has to be the first step because, you know, as much as we've heard in the media these days that technology is melting your brain and it's hijacking your brain, it's doing this and that to you, that, you know, even if you get rid of all the technology, as I did, I I followed, you know, the 30-day detox plans and the minimalism and all the books that tell you to get rid of the technology, it doesn't freaking work. It doesn't work because of two reasons. One, we need this stuff, for God's sakes. We're hackers, right? (laughs) Like we need this technology. We can't just stop using it. Our life depends on it. So it's very easy for some professor to tell us to stop using social media when they don't use it. What about us who need social media for our livelihoods and email and Slack channels? This stuff is, is how we work. So that's not a practical solution for that reason. And then second, it doesn't work because these temporary approaches are just as bad as a fad diet. So I used to be clinically obese. Uh, for a good chunk of my life. And I would constantly go on these fad diets of 30 days, no junk food, or 30 days this, or 30 days that. And that's exactly what people are saying to do today with when it comes to digital distraction. And it doesn't work for the same exact reason, because when you go on a 30-day diet, what do you do on day 31? Right? And you, blah, 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 blah. you eat everything, <laughs> as I did time and time again. So the reason fad diets don't work are the same reason that these 30-day plans don't work for you know digital detox or whatever. 
Because you're not getting to the real source of the problem. The real source of the problem is that we have to learn to deal with discomfort in a healthy way. That time management is pain management. That has to be the first step before we can move to step two. Well, I've always thought of you as someone who's been working on becoming indistractable for quite some time. I remember the last time we spoke, you had some sort of physical device hooked up that would automatically shut off your internet router every night at a certain time. Since then, you've obviously done a ton of research, uh, not just for the sake of the book, for for your own sake, so you can become a better researcher, a better writer, a better author, a better dad. Um, What are some of the other things that don't work? What are some things that people are commonly trying that you have found through your research aren't effective at making you? Oh my God, where do we start? (laughs) There's so many, you know, grayscaling your phone or, uh, you know, so many, or even, you know, even some of these techniques that do work, don't work in the wrong order. So, uh, yeah, one of the first techniques that I kind of uncovered, uh, I didn't invent it, of course, it's an ancient technique. This is called using a pre-commitment device. And uh, pre-commitment devices have been uh, used for at least 2,500 years. The first telling of the use of a pre-commitment device is in the Odyssey by Homer. But, you know, there's been a ton of research that shows how effective a pre-commitment device is. And a pre-commitment device is just a planning ahead to make sure you don't get distracted, some kind of contract with yourself. So, for example, uh, a 401k that has stiff penalties if you withdraw your money before retirement, that's a pre-commitment device. So what you mentioned, uh, this internet timer that, you know, really saved my sex life. Uh, I've been married for almost 20 years. And I'm just happy I have a sex life after 20 years. But, you know, a few years ago, before I... I figured out the entire indistractable methodology. Uh, my wife and I just had this real rut in our marriage where we were we were not having any sex, <laughs> and the reason was is that we would fondle our iPhones and play with our iPads as opposed to being intimate. And so I went to the hardware store and I got a five dollar outlet timer, and I plugged it into the wall. And this outlet timer will turn anything you plug into it off at a certain time of day or night. And so 10 p.m. in my household, the internet shuts off. And uh, we don't use the internet timer anymore. Now we actually have a router, the Eero router, that comes built in with this feature. So we, you know, it used to be a problem because we have smart home devices and they would all turn off. So that doesn't happen anymore because we, you tell the Eero router to only turn off some devices and not others. Well, this is an example of a pre-commitment device and it works great. What I didn't know at the time is that if you use a pre-commitment device in the wrong order, it can backfire. A pre-commitment device is the fourth step. And there are three types of pre-commitments. There are effort packs, price packs, and identity packs, which we can get into with more detail. But what's very, very important to know is that this is the last step. If you don't first deal with the internal triggers, if you don't first make time for traction, if you don't first hack back the external triggers, the pre-commitment devices won't work. So it's really important to do these four steps in order. Cool. So that's step one. Assuming you master your internal triggers, you move on to step two, which is to make time for traction. This is one I think should resonate with a lot of early stage founders, especially people trying to start a company on the side of their full-time job. It's hard to make time when you have a family, you have kids, and you have all sorts of hobbies and interests and friends and responsibilities outside of work. How do you make time for traction? Yeah, so this really comes down to this this fact that most people out there don't keep a calendar. About two-thirds of Americans keep no calendar whatsoever. And I I had this experience, uh, I used to not keep a calendar. And I remember I I, I had a friend 
who I interviewed for, for the book, who told me about how terrible distraction is and how technology is melting her brain because she can't concentrate on anything and everything's so distracting and what's going on in the news and her boss and her kids and ah, she can't get anything done. And so I asked her a simple question. I said, you know, wow, that's, that's really tough. Can you tell me what it is you got distracted from today? Show me your calendar. So she took out her calendar kind of sheepishly and she opened, you know, she opened the calendar app on her phone and she let me have it. And it was blank. Cortland, there was nothing on it. It was blank. And two thirds of Americans go through their day complaining about distraction when they have no idea what the hell they got distracted from. So we have no right to complain about distraction unless you know what traction is for every minute of your day. You're not just going to build that business when it comes to you. You're not going to spend time with your family, your friends, uh, your kids when it happens. You're not going to journal or write or whatever it is that you want to do that's hard work, that requires dedicated time, unless you make time for it on your calendar. This is called turning your values into time. I should be able to see on your calendar what's important to you. Blocked out. It's amazing. While two-thirds of Americans don't do this, there was one group of people who all do this. Every C-level executive that I interviewed in the research that led up to this book, every one of them did this. They all use this time-blocking technique to make a, uh, a template for what their ideal day looks like, where they're supposed to be, when they're supposed to be there for every minute of the day. And a lot of people cringe at this. They say, oh, I can't do that. You know, I need to be spontaneous and I don't want to plan every minute of our day. Tough. This is the price of living in our age of all of these modern devices that connect us seamlessly with people all over the world for free is that people can access you anytime they want. And so if you don't plan your day, somebody else will. Your family, your boss, whatever Trump says, the media, somebody is going to capture your brain and your attention unless you decide for yourself in advance how you want to spend your time. If there's one mantra I want people to tattoo on their, on their arms to remember from my book, it's that the antidote to impulsiveness is forethought. That human beings can do something that no other species on the face of the earth can do is that we can see the future with higher fidelity than any other animal. We can predict what's going to happen, which means I don't care what algorithms Facebook is making to distract you. I don't care what's happening in the news. I don't care what, what's going on. If you plan ahead, this is how we fight distraction. We take steps now to make sure we don't get distracted later. The antidote to impulsiveness is forethought. I used to be very anti-calendar. It was part of my, my Andy Hacker pride. Like I don't wake up to an alarm. I don't have a calendar. Then I started a podcast, and that changed all that. And now I have a calendar that's very full. But let's say I've got a calendar. Let's say I'm scheduling my tasks. Things still happen. I still get distracted. I still get emails. I still get phone calls and Slack chats. Mm-hmm. I still get little emergencies that pop up. They can really easily throw my day into disarray. How do I deal with those distractions despite having a calendar? So that's the perfect lead into step three. Uh, which is to hack back the external triggers. So they have the external triggers are exactly what you described, the pings, the dings, the rings, all of these things that prompt you to either traction or distraction. So newsflash, we turn them off. And there ain't nothing that Zuckerberg or Tim Cook or anybody else can do when you turn them off. Now, I'm not saying turn them off forever. What I'm saying is during the time in your schedule, when you have time to do focused work, right, to just 
focus on one task at a time, those notifications need to be turned off. If you don't know how to use do not disturb on your phone, you don't deserve to have a phone. And don't give your kids a phone until they know how to use it too. And so some people say, well, what if there's an emergency? What if my house is burning down? Someone needs to contact me right away. First of all, very rarely is there an actual emergency. I know emails are urgent, but almost no emails can't wait 30 minutes, 45 minutes while you have your focused work time. Second, there's features that come built in with our phones that very few people use that are amazing. For example, this feature called Do Not Disturb While Driving. It comes on every iPhone with the, the latest iOS. All you have to do is turn on Do Not Disturb While Driving. And if someone texts you or calls you, they will receive an auto reply that says, I'm driving. I can't talk to you right now. If this is urgent, text me with the word urgent. Now, you can go in there and customize that message. So now it's not just Do Not Disturb While Driving. It's Do Not Disturb While Indistractable. So when someone texts me while I'm doing my focused work time, they'll get a message back that says, I'm indistractable. If this is urgent, please text with the word urgent. Now, if it really is urgent, they just text the word urgent. And now I get that message. By the way, this never happens, <laughs> right? Because nothing is, is you know usually that urgent uh, that I can't wait for, for 30 minutes or 45 minutes while I do my focused work time. And so that's really part of the answer is, is adjusting these notification settings. By the way, that's the easy stuff. The easy stuff, I, I hate people who complain about their phones being so distracted. Did you even try, right? Two thirds of Americans don't even change their notification settings. So we got to take those 10 minutes to just change those notification settings, first and foremost, on our phones, on our laptops. That's easy stuff. The harder stuff has to do with the, the external triggers that people don't recognize. For example, statistically, one of the most common sources of distraction in our workday, it's not our phones, not our computers. It's our coworkers, particularly when we work, as many startup founders and, and, and employees do, in open floor plan offices. So that's been shown to be one of the greatest sources of distraction. And people say, well, you know, I, I, I put on my headphones and then, you know, that's how I zone out. Eh, not really. <laughs> it doesn't really work that well because, you know, nobody knows if you're listening to a podcast or uh, uh, watching a YouTube video or whatever. So here's the solution. The solution is that in every copy of my book, you can also get this for free if you go to indistractable.com, you can print for yourself a screen sign. So in the book, it's, it's printed on this nice cardstock that stands up real nice. You pull it out of the book, you fold it into thirds, and you put this bright red sign on your monitor that says, I'm indistractable at the moment. Please come back later. Okay. And this signals to your colleagues that you are not to be disturbed right now. Now, I know what people are thinking. Oh, that would never work in my company. My company culture would never allow that. Exactly. Because the source of distraction is not the technology. The source of distraction is crappy company culture. And there's a whole section in the book. Half the book is about things you can do yourself. Half the book is about how we change the context within which we work. And it turns out that symptoms of distraction are an indication that you have crappy company culture that there is no correlation between how much tech a company uses and how distracted people are. In fact, one of the technologies that I heard the most complaints about when I was researching this book was Slack. Everybody complains about Slack, you know, this, the, the, the largest group chat app. People say how distracting Slack is and it constantly tethers them to the office all day long. Well, here's the interesting thing. If it's the technology that's doing it to us, well, then the people who use Slack most should be the most distracted, right? And who uses Slack more than the employees of Slack? So they should be the most distracted people on earth. 
but that's not the case. In fact, Slack doesn't have a problem with distraction. If you go to Slack, the company headquarters, it's cleared out by 6, 6.30, everybody's gone. Nights and weekends, nobody's using Slack at Slack. Why? Well, they embody these three principles of a healthy company culture. And those three principles are, number one, they enable psychological safety. Now, there's been many studies on this concept of psychological safety, which simply means that you can raise problems and concerns without fear of retribution. Okay, that's psychological safety. Two, they give a forum for employees to be heard out by management. And it's interesting, at Slack, they actually use Slack channels. They have these channels, like uh, there's one called Beef Tweets, where people can, can just you know post beef about the company. And upper management will use emoji, like the eyes emoji, to tell people that they've seen the, the, the problem and they're working on it. Okay, so that gives people, you know, first psychological safety, then the forum to air concerns. And three, and most importantly, management needs to exemplify what it means to be indistractable. So when you walk into uh, Slack company headquarters in San Francisco, you will see a big sign in pink letters that says, work hard and go home. Not something you would typically expect to see in a publicly traded Silicon Valley company of the size of, of Slack. So why do they do that? Because it is part of the company culture from Stuart Butterfield, the CEO on down. This is part of the company culture. And of course, the company is rated as one of the best places to work in America. They have very, very low churn rate and they make an awesome product. And and that's largely in part because they have a healthy company culture as opposed to a company culture that we see all too often, you know, companies where people can't raise concerns because they're afraid of retribution, where management isn't listening to people and where management is exemplifying the opposite of being indistractable. They're constantly spun up in this cycle of responsiveness that makes everyone miserable. So I have a question about procrastination, which seems intimately related to everything that we're talking about here. A lot of people want to start a company. They want to get started, but that first step is just the hardest. There's something about it or even if they're really motivated, they might really hate their job. They might really have all the skills. They might be really inspired by stories that they've heard or even friends who've gotten started. But when it comes time for them to get started, they just like, can't quite get over the hell. There's something about that first step. They're just never quite ready and it never happens. So what I want to know is how to apply the techniques you're describing specifically for procrastination. Are these techniques just for avoiding distractions or is there a way we can use them to help us do the things that we're putting off for weeks or months or even years? Yeah, so procrastination is one form of distraction, but not all distraction is procrastination. So procrastination is when you put off something that you want to do, but you know, not all distraction is procrastination. If if you're um, in a meeting, right, and uh, you're you're having a hot and heavy discussion, and then someone takes out their phone and starts checking email in the meeting that in the middle of that meeting, crazy annoying, drives me crazy. <laughs> That's not procrastination. That is distraction, right? You decided you were going to go to a meeting, and here you are distracted on your device. By the way, there's a whole chapter on how to hack back meetings. I mean, meetings are such a waste of time at most companies because most companies don't do them right. They don't follow these simple rules of how to have a good meeting, which I describe in the book, that prevents people from getting distracted in these meetings. So that's a that's one of these eight environments that we need to hack back the external triggers. So when it comes to procrastination in terms of how we how we get started, it, it really comes down to identifying our values. I think it starts with, you know, what values are important to us? Not just, you know, I want to, ha- a lot of people want to have built a company. A lot of people want to have written a book. A, a lot of people want 
a, a good looking, healthy body, but they don't want to put in the work to do it. And so part of your value system needs to be, you know, values are defined as the attributes of the person you want to become. And so it's not, it's not about having the things of a person you want to become. It's about the attributes of the person you want to become. So I would ask folks, you know, if you've been, uh, if you've had a project in mind, a product you want to build, something you want to hack together, the, the first question is to ask yourself, you know, why do you want that? And then if it's about, you know, I want to be the kind of person who innovates. I want to be the kind of person who pushes limits. I want to be the kind of person who who constantly tests themselves to see what they're possible, uh, what what they're able, I'm sorry, what they're capable of, of learning and doing. Well, then great. Then I love it. Now we're talking values. Next step is to put those values on your calendar, to turn your values into time, which means that the antidote to procrastination is simply putting a little bit of time, right? It can be 30 minutes. It's fine. 30 minutes to do something, anything related to this task that you've been putting putting off. Uh, and that's how we do it. We, we put time on our calendar. This is called a pre, uh, uh, an implementation intention. Also, hundreds of studies. And by the way, nothing in my book is this folk psychology stuff that you see in a lot of other books. You know, this worked for me. I took cold showers and hey, that changed my life. Great. Well, that, that's got no data. You know, there, there's been no studies that show that's the case uh, for everyone else. But, you know, so everything in my book, it comes from peer-reviewed journals. And this technique of setting an implementation intention is one of the most well-studied techniques that we can use to make sure we do what it is we say we're going to do. And it's just a fancy way of saying, planning out what we're going to do and when we're going to do it. And then we can use these other techniques like the pre-commitment device, the packs we discussed earlier, to make sure we do it. So for example, let me give you a very personal story of procrastination. So I've been researching Indistractable for four years. And I, I finally had this breakthrough with the model and I knew what I wanted to say and I had all the research. I've been doing it for four years. And, I, and, and most importantly, it worked. <laughs> like I finally discovered the right four steps to actually help us conquer distraction. And now I needed to actually write the book. So I used this stuff on myself. <laughs> and one of the things I did was you know, to prevent procrastination and to actually get me to write the book is I used a pre-commitment device uh, that I call a price pact. And a price pact is simply where we inflict some kind of financial cost to not doing what we want to do. So in my case, I made a bet with my friend Mark that if I didn't finish my manuscript by January, I would have to pay him $10,000. Guess what happened? You think I lost my money? Of course not. I kept my money and I had my finished manuscript. So this is a really simple technique that we have to ask ourselves. Like, if you really want to do something, put some skin in the game, right? You really want to finish that, the, you know, writing that, uh, that blog post. You really want to uh, finish that code. You really want to do whatever it is you want to do. Put some skin in the game. See what happens when you actually put a painful amount of money at stake. Guess what? You'll do it. Now, most people don't want to take that bet. Why? Because they know they'll actually have to move their butts and do the work. But isn't that exactly the point? Right. So if that scares you, I would back up a step and ask yourself whether, wait a minute, if I'm not willing to put money down, if I'm not willing to take some risk here, then what am I escaping from? Because of course, if you do the work, you get the benefit of your work as well as your money. <laughs> you keep both. So, you know, why would we pay Weight Watchers and Jenny Craig and all the, you know, these folks money to get something that we could essentially get both. We could keep our money and get the results we're looking for. And that applies you know, to food as well as distraction. But again, those pre-commitment devices, I have, to, I have to warn, I have to say this again, 
has to come last. It's the fourth step. If you don't do the other three first, it can, in fact, backfire. I love this idea of, of not wanting to be the kind of person who has written a book or who has started a company, but wanting to be the kind of person who's actively working on it. Like if you're going to be jealous of somebody, don't be jealous of the person who succeeded. Be jealous of the person who's in the middle of it because that's the step that's in front of you. There is no option to just magically lead towards success. The only option is get started. So that's what needs to be exciting to you. And a pre-commitment right. device is not only a good way to actually get started, but it's also kind of a good litmus test. Like if you're not willing to put up a little bit of money to get started on this thing, then do you really want to get started? Right, right. I mean, if you can't make a bet that, hey, I'm going to fly to the moon with my own two arms. Okay, well, that's, you know, that defies the laws of physics. So, you know, you, you, but if it is a task you can do, if it is humanly possible, why not take the bet? Take the bet, right? You're going to get what you want out of the bet, which is to keep your money and have the output. And if you're looking for someone to pay all that money to, in case you don't reach your goals, <laughs> Cortland at ndhackers.com. I'll take any of your bets. Uh, happy to be on the receiving end of that. There you go. Nir, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure talking to you as always. Can you tell listeners where they can go to read your book, Indistractable, and become better founders? Absolutely. So my blog is nearandfar.com. Near is spelled like my first name, N-I-R. So that's nearandfar.com. My first book is Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Products. And my next book is called Indistractable, How to Control Your Attention and Choose Your Life. And Indistractable, uh, there are tons there's tons of free resources and tools uh, like a, a, a schedule maker as well as a distraction tracker, a free 80-page workbook that I couldn't fit into the actual book, but I, uh, I give out complimentary to, to on uh, my website. That's all at indistractable.com. That's spelled I-N, the word distract, A-B-L-E. So indistractable.com. All right. Thanks so much, Nir. Thank you very much. If you enjoyed listening to this conversation and you want a really easy way to support the podcast, why don't you head over to iTunes and leave us a quick rating or even a review? If you're looking for an easy way to get there, just go to ndhackers.com slash review, and that should open up iTunes on your computer. I read pretty much all the reviews that you guys leave over there, and it really helps other people to discover the show, so your support is very much appreciated. In addition, if you are running your own internet business, or if that's something you hope to do someday, you should join me and a whole bunch of other founders on the ndhackers.com website. It's a great place to get feedback on pretty much any problem or question that you might have while running your business. If you listen to the show, you know that I am a huge proponent of getting help from other founders rather than trying to build your business all by yourself. So you'll see me on the forum for sure, as well as more than a handful of some of the guests that I've had on the podcast. If you're looking for inspiration, we've also got a huge directory full of hundreds of products built by other indie hackers, every one of which includes revenue numbers and some of the behind the scenes strategies for how they grew their products from nothing. As always, thanks so much for listening and I'll see you next time.